Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. I think it's so neat that you're able to join us through this medium, and it means so much to me personally to hear that this has been used to encourage so many of you. It has always been the posture of Genesis to tangibly extend the love of Jesus in various ways, both locally and across the world. We support programs that assist families in need, contribute to ongoing works and building projects in Mexico. We've built a latrine and cafeteria for St. Andre's School in Haiti, as well as are advancing a food program there that we hope will help feed the children for years to come. The money collected for all these endeavors could have paid for a facility of our own many times over, but instead, we've intentionally chosen to be a mobile community since we began. We now have before us an opportunity to invest in a building of our own. We're not doing this, however, without considering the works we're committed to or even the works we feel compelled to keep doing in the future. But we're asking, if you've benefited from this podcast or from anything that Genesis has done, would you consider partnering with us by donating to this work directly at www.thegenesisstory.com and click on the Building Fund tab. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Together, let's prepare for an amazing tomorrow. Thanks, and God bless. Good morning. We are continuing our What's Most Important series, and today it's going to be part two of What's Most Important. And what we're looking at are the things that are at the core of who we are as a community, the things that make us what we are as Genesis. And last week we talked about how it is our central theme to try and connect people to to God, to connect people to life that is found in God, to connect people to the hope that is found in God, that this is our posture, that mission is why the church exists, and that's why we are here. We are here to extend this amazing hope that we have received through Christ to the world around us, to the people around us. And today we want to continue kind of in that theme. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 7. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. John writes, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. John gives this incredible declaration that God is love, and he, he moves so far as to say that this love has been demonstrated to us and has been seen through his only son, Jesus, and that Jesus has given himself as the sacrifice for us, and by this we know 
this love, and, and that God can't be seen, but he actually can be seen in us if we also would have this love for one another. His love is then made complete. It is fulfilled in us. And so when we start talking about God is love, there's a few questions that come to mind. I mean, it's kind of a thing that we say very easily. Oh, yeah, God is love. And we say, well, what, what does that look like? What does love look like? Or that, you know, well, Jesus is the expression of God in that love. Okay, what does Jesus look like? And let's admit it, we're affected by our culture as to what we see. And so you have to ask, well, then what, what Jesus are you talking about? What does Jesus look like to us? And how is he disclosed in scripture? Is he the hippie Jesus from the 70s? Is he like the cage fighter Jesus? You know, he's going to bring restitution to this world. Is he the tea party Jesus? Is he the democratic party Jesus? You see, there's now having to be this clarity of what does Jesus look like and what does love look like if it is displayed through the person of Jesus? Because a lot of times we have an understanding about God that I believe comes from maybe a tradition that we've had or maybe a culture that we're in where we start to see God in the way that we've been told about him. And we have all these metaphors in Scripture that tell us who God is, but metaphors can only go so far. And so we have a metaphor that God is our Father, our Heavenly Father. But sometimes to get a a clear understanding of what that metaphor is, it's good to start asking what it isn't. In other words, if God is our Father, what kind of Father isn't He? Well, He's not a Father who abandons His children, right? He's not a father who is abusive. And so that gives us some understanding of more what that metaphor embraces. But he's so much more than just a father. You know, Jesus is the the lion of the tribe of Judah. So he's a lion. But he's also a lamb. Now, those are two interesting animals to combine together, right? Which one is he? Well, there's a little bit of both in those things, but they don't completely encapsulate who he is. And so sometimes we have multiple metaphors to help us understand this recognition of who God is and what love is. And if you are like me and have grown up in the evangelical system, Maybe you've heard some things, and I've taught some of these things myself. And so you have this understanding of, you know, God is looking towards us, but when man sinned and turned away from God, then what happened is God had to turn away from man. And so we have in the garden, Adam sinned, and because God is holy, righteous, and true, because he is perfect, he cannot look on sin. And so because man sinned, God turned his back on mankind because of that sin, 
because God is holy and he cannot look on sin. But then if we will then make the turn and we will accept Christ, we will make the turn in repentance towards God. Say, God, I, I need your forgiveness. I want to be cleansed from my sin. And we make the turn towards God. Then God will turn back to us and then he will restore us. Does this sound like something anyone's heard? Okay, a few of you. All right. Some of you shaking your head, some of you raising your hand. You could scream if you want. Yeah, I've heard that, whatever. Just let me know you're here. And so we have this understanding of God, that God is perfect, holy, and righteous, and he cannot look on sin. And so when man sins, God has to turn his back on mankind. And then when man says, okay, God, I'm sorry, then God says, okay, I'll take you back. But there's, there's some questions that jump out at me in this way of thinking. First of all, it, it now becomes our response to God. I have to be the one that turns, otherwise God doesn't turn towards me. And so now I'm the one initiating this kind of response towards God. Is the consequence of turning from God really that God will turn from me? Is God only facing me when I decide to face him? Who's seeking who? Who? Who finds who? Do I find God and then he finds me? Who saves who? Is a grace that depends on my capacity to turn away really grace? And most importantly, what does Scripture say about that? Is that the disclosure of Scripture? What if, if this suggestion here is the judgment for turning from God, is that really when God judges us? See, but that's not what we see in Scripture. What we see in Scripture is that God is turned towards us no matter where we are. And you think about it throughout Scripture. Adam sinned. Who came looking for him? It was God. Cain killed his brother. Who came and talked to him? Abraham, Moses, in their failures, who came and restored them? When Moses slew the Egyptian, who was the one in the wilderness reaching out to bring Moses back in? David, in his sin, who was the one pursuing him? And then we move into the New Testament. And even as we just read, that God now in Christ has come to us and revealed himself to us. And we see the Samaritan woman who had five husbands and was living with someone. Who's the one who reached out to her? The woman who was caught in adultery. Who's the one who said, I don't condemn you? Who's the one who brought restoration to her when everyone else was bringing condemnation Zacchaeus, who's the one who said, I need to go to your home? Even though you're a tax collector and robbing the people around you. You see, God is always postured towards these people. Saul was going to kill and imprison Christians. Who was the one who reached out to him on the road to Damascus? You see, God is always turned towards people. 
And I want you to know that because no matter where you are right now, if you're sitting in the chair and you're looking away from God, I want you to know that he is looking towards you, that this is the love of God, that we love him because he first loved us, that anytime we turn to him, he is there waiting for us, just like the prodigal who ran home and his father then ran after him. That is the picture of scripture, of who God is. And this is the love that is overwhelming. This is the love that wins us. You see, we tend to think of of God in these terms that we can identify with. And so our our metaphor of a father is, well, sometimes he gets mad and and sometimes he's a judge and sometimes he's these things. And those metaphors sometimes can lock us into a, a frame of thinking that leads us to some erroneous conclusion. You see, sin is more than just something that is breaking the law. And so there has to be judgment because you broke the law Sin is a disease, and you can't punish a disease. You need a good physician. And there's another metaphor. He's not come to heal those who are healthy, but the sick and call those who are lost to repentance. So who's reaching who? We see that it's always God who's reaching out for us. It is always God who is extending his hand. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. In the Beatitudes, we hear the words of Jesus, starting at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Let me ask you this. If we are to love our enemies, what does God do? Does God love his enemies or is he just telling us to love his enemies? Right? Is this one of those fathers do as I say, not as I do? No, he's not that kind of father. And so he says to, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. In other words, if you love your enemies, then you are like your father. Why? He goes on and he says, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You see, God is always postured towards even those who are his enemy, even those who are turned away, he is still pouring out blessing on them. He is giving them sunshine. He is giving them rain. He is providing the things that they need. If you love, verse 46, those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Then he goes on and he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Be perfect. You see, in this description that Jesus gives, this idea of perfection, this idea of holiness is actually that of compassion. Compassion. 
When he says be perfect, it's right after he told us to love and to be generous. Like God is generous. Be like that. That is being perfect. And so for us, this idea of holiness is this kind of Puritan view. It means stop doing things that are bad, start doing things that are good. But in this conversation that Jesus has, this idea of holiness is actually be a person who is compassionate. It's other than. It's not like those who just love the ones who they get something from. It's being like God who loves everybody. And so he's moved in this way. And that's why in Luke 6.36, it says, be merciful just as your father is merciful. And so we see that the chair is always turned towards humanity. We see that God is loving those who don't love him. That God is not waiting for them to love him so that he could love them back. No, God so loved the world that he gave his son that who would ever believe in him would not perish but would have this life. That's his posture and that's to be our posture. If we are going to be his children, we need to act like him. And so this love is the motivation. It is the context for what we call mission. It is what moves us. It's not obligation. Well, we have to do our missions. We have to go out and and preach the gospel. We have to go out and bring these lost sinners into the, the fold. No, what is a Happening here is we care so much that we cannot see them estranged. We cannot bear the fact that they are outside of the love and goodness that God wants to pour even more so on them. And so love is what drives us. It's what motivates us. And when love motivates you, it changes how we do the things that we do. A lot of times I used to be at a place where I, I saw the chairs in, in that first fashion where, you know, God can't look on them because of sin. And maybe I'll talk on Habakkuk and Isaiah a little bit in those passages where people use those things. But I used to think, okay, it's my job to to help them understand that they need to change. And so I saw this idea of sharing my faith as winning them in a conversation. I need to win this debate, so to speak. My argument needs to be better than them. And so I would go out there at full force. I'd have my verses. I'd be studied up in my apologetics. And I would Come on, let's go. Let's duke it out. Give me your best shot. What do you got? Okay, I got a scripture for that. Oh, I got a verse for that. Oh, I can slam that one. As if winning an argument was the the whole purpose. And you see, God doesn't want you to win an argument. He wants you to win the person. And you don't win a person by arguing. You win a person by caring. You win a person by showing compassion. I remember in the fifth grade, there was this kid named Howard. 
Howard was a big kid, and he was a bully. And Howard used to push people around, and he used to push me around. And I remember, you know, your pride gets hurt, and so you want to push back. But I wasn't much taller than I am today (laughs) back in the fifth grade. And Howard was... And I can remember when I realized pushing Howard is not going to get me the victory in this battle because he's too big. I remember one time he was pushing me around and he's just bullying on me. And I just stopped and I said, Howard, no one likes you because you bully everybody. And it stopped him in his tracks. I said, if you try being nice to people, you might have some friends. Now I was saying it kind of in a slam way, but it stopped him, and all of a sudden, he was my friend. <laughs> and all of a sudden, he's like, oh, okay. And he goes, what do you want to do for lunch? I like, don't want to do anything for lunch with you. <laughs> but now I have to step into this, because now I said something, and he's realizing, you know, what Howard was was lonely. What Howard was was hurting. What Howard was was broken. And he didn't need someone to push him back. And to win that battle, he needed someone to open up and say, man, People will like you if you change, and that's really what he wanted. And so many times we're just thinking if I can prove someone wrong, if I can bully them back, if I can push at them, give them enough arguments and enough answers, then I will win the battle, and then they'll see that I'm right, and then they'll come and follow the God that I follow. And that's not what we're seeing displayed through Jesus. He's not trying to win an argument. And so you don't have to go to your friends at school and answer all their, you know, Christopher Hitchens videos. I'm going I'm to argue these things. And you don't have to find out and try and get an answer for all those things that are wrong. It's great to study. It's great to learn things. But what you need to do is love them and care about them genuinely and be someone who they can call on when they need someone because you, like God, are always facing them with the idea that I'm here when you need me. Because love is the context for everything that we do. The reason we want to reach out is because we care. Because we want them to know that God cares. You know, it's so interesting, some of the scriptures, where Paul will say in Romans 2, 4, Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is, is intended to lead you to repentance? How do we show contempt? How, how were they showing contempt for God's riches of his kindness and his forbearance? See, this is what the book of Romans is all about. And if you don't understand this in chapter 2, you're going to have a heck of a time in chapter 9. When he says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Why? Does he, he really hate Esau? No, he's quoting Malachi, and he's talking about people who, have, who are not the firstborn or people who are the firstborn who don't have God's pleasure. It was actually 
Jacob, who was the second born. It's actually the Gentiles who God is now showing favor to. Are, are you putting down God's forbearance? Are, are you rejecting this? Are, are you showing contempt? Because don't you realize it is goodness that leads us to repentance? It's not his judgment. It's not his law. It's not his obligation that brings us into an understanding of that. Paul says in Titus chapter 2, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. What teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives? It is the grace that has appeared to us. It is the grace, it is the love, it is the goodness of God that moves us to a place where our hearts are soft and open and we're willing to receive. See, some of you still think God is looking away from you every time you blow it. Every time you use that drug, every time you look at that porn, every time you gamble that money away, every time you take that drink, you think God turns his chair from you and is not looking at you. And you got to understand that his chair is turning towards you. He's calling your name and he loves you the same. That Jesus didn't come to save us from God's judgment. He came to reveal God's salvation. That God is looking to save, to restore and to bring you to him. So wherever you are at, don't let that condemnation overtake you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why? Because God is postured towards you. He wants you to know that love. And so now that is supposed to be our posture towards others. We're not here to get them to clean up their lives. Get them to stop sinning. That's my goal. No, my goal is to connect them to God. And the reason is because I love them. And that reason also becomes what pulls them into that conversation. And it's important. This is important for us. And when we're talking to our friends, our coworkers, it's important to us when we're talking to our children, people in our family, that we have this as the motivation and not winning the argument or taking charge of these things. It's interesting too, Paul in Romans 5.20 says, but when sin increased, grace increased all the more. That's an amazing thing. When sin increased, grace was right there. It was still above it. And he says, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he goes on and he says, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? You see, what I take from this question is if people aren't asking that question of you, then maybe you're not preaching the same gospel that Paul was. 
When you talk to people and someone comes up, are you, you saying that you know, they can continue in sin, that grace might abound? That should be their reaction to what we're saying because our words are so filled with grace and so dependent on love because we are not coming to a place where we are putting some restriction on them. We are saying God loves you so much and the door is open for you to come in wherever you are. Are you saying that anyone can come to God no matter where they are? Yes, I am. Are you saying that they should continue in sin, that grace may abound? No, but I'm glad you think that way because that should be what you think by what I say. That should be a question that answers because that's where we start to go. And what we're saying is, no, there is life in God. How can I live in this life if I'm dead to this life? And it is the love of God that pulls me out of the depth of this darkness and into the glorious light that I can live for him. It is his grace that makes me want to live a self-controlled and complete life. And holiness is seen in compassion. This is the motivation. This is the story. And even when people try and bring, well, what about the wrath of God? You know, there's the wrath of God. You got to tell people about the wrath of God. There's a passage in Habakkuk 1 verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. What about that scripture? Same verse, it says, why then do you tolerate the treacherous? You see, Habakkuk's complaint goes on like this. God, your eyes are too pure to look on sin, so why do you? You're too holy to tolerate wickedness, so why do you? And as the book starts to unfold, God makes it clear that he does see all the sin and the wickedness. It's not gone unnoticed and that he will make it right, but you see, it's actually for casting the coming of Christ to save the people. In chapter 3, Verse 2, he prays prophetically, in wrath, remember mercy. God won't look on sin. In wrath, remember mercy. That's the posture of God. And as we see scripture, it's not that there's this God that we need to be saved from. It is Jesus revealing that God is our Savior. If God couldn't look on sin, why does Jesus look on sin and go to where sinners are? See, he's not different. And this is where we see that God is revealed more, most clearly in the person of Christ. And so what we need is a God who doesn't look like the Democratic Party or the Republican Party or a God who looks like the United States American dream or whatever other country you're in. We need a God that looks like Jesus. We need a God who loves like Jesus and actually Jesus is revealing who God actually is. And it's supposed to fuel our souls with that love 
and that compassion. As you start to live with someone, husband, wife, children, as you get closer to people, it's easy to start getting annoyed with certain things. My wife and I tease each other with these things that annoy each other. I don't like it when she leaves things on the door handle in the room, plastic bags, towels, you know, she'll put something on there. And it's like, I don't, I don't like that on the door handle. She doesn't like it when I leave the coat hangers on the rack inside the bathroom, you know, when I take the shower, I have this rack. And so I'm always leaving hangers there. She's always leaving towels there. And it's this kind of like, you know, she'll come in and she goes, oh, here, here's your coat hangers. You know, I just want you to know. And I'll just take the bag and I'll put it on the bed, you know, when she's there. These things that annoy each other because, you know, you get set in your ways and you kind of want to have these things not annoy you anymore. But then sometimes you're aware that there's things that you do that actually hurt the people you love. Not just annoy them, but actually hurt them. When they become insecure in the relationship because of how you speak, because of what you do, because of not being thoughtful. And when those things come up and you realize that you've wounded someone who's important to you because of your lack of concern and interest, lack of paying attention, then you have to choose what you're going to do. Are you going to care less and let the relationship erode and develop into some cancerous, difficult situations? Or are you going to address it and say, I'm sorry. I need to make some changes because I really do care about you. And the relationship will never work unless you really do care enough to make the changes necessary. If I'm not willing to take hangers off the door, if I'm not willing to to control the things that I say and the things that I do, if I'm unwilling, then I'm going to continue to hurt my wife and the people I love and the things I say and the things I do. And we have to recognize that. Because you care, you make the effort. Because you care, you apologize. Because you care, you are willing to forgive whenever they're turning their chair back towards you. Whenever you care, you actually look like God. That's what First John said. We have never seen God who is love, but when we love, and care for one another. His love is displayed. It is seen in us. You want to change the world? You want to bring people to a saving knowledge of who Jesus is? Then love them. 
turn your chair towards them and say, I'm here. How can I help? I care. What can I say? What can I do? I'm sorry for what I've done that's hurt you. I'm here whenever you would turn. Love is the context of all mission. It is the heartbeat of Christ. It is the revelation of who God is through Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would have a clear understanding of who you are. And Lord, there is no clearer revelation of who you are than that of Jesus. And Father, I pray for those who are here this morning who maybe have been living in that little chair game where they keep turning their chair and keep thinking that you're turning your chair, Lord. May they recognize you do not change. Your chair never moves. You are always facing us. You are always loving us. That you are always extending grace and mercy to us. That it is your love and kindness that lead us to repentance, that it is your grace that moves us to want to live self-controlled and holy lives, and that holiness is compassion. Lord, I pray we would be holy people, that people would see holiness in us because of how we care, because of how we love, because of how we represent you. May you bring healing, God, to those who have been hurt by this thought that you are ready to judge them whenever they do something wrong. May you bring comfort. May you open those doors that have been placed there because of this false view of who you are. May we, like the Hebrews say, come with confidence, with boldness to the throne of grace to find what we need in our time of need. Lord, know that you are here for us, and in turn, Lord, might we be here for the world around us. May this be at the core of who we are. May this be why we call ourselves Christian, because we are like you, Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us? May you realize that God looks like Jesus. And may you realize that holiness looks like compassion. And may you be his holy people. God bless you guys. Have a great week. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.